0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 205 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most recognizable and admired big-screen character actors of the last 30 years, a three-time Oscar nominee, each time in the category of Best Supporting Actor, who this year might take home the gold for the first time, Willem Dafoe. The 62-year-old's film credits include Walter Hill's Streets of Fire, William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A., Oliver Stone's Platoon, for which he received his first Oscar nom in 1987, and Born on the Fourth of July, Alan Parker's Mississippi Burning, Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, David Lynch's Wild at Heart, Brian Gilbert's Tom and Viv, Anthony Minghella's The English Patient, E. Elias Merhige's Shadow of the Vampire, for which he received his second Oscar nom in 2001, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, Paul Schrader's Autofocus, Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, Lars von Trier's Antichrist, and, most recently, Sean Baker's The Florida Project, my favorite film of 2017, for which, just a few weeks ago, he received Oscar nom number three, and for which, just a few weeks from now... He might well win. His portrayal in the film of Bobby, an Orlando area motel manager with a rough exterior but a heart of gold, already has been recognized with Best Supporting Actor prizes from the National Board of Review, the National Society of Film Critics, the New York Film Critics Circle, and the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, as well as with Gotham, Critics Choice, Golden Globe, and SAG Award noms. It's also BAFTA nominated as well. But first, I sat down in Los Angeles, across the street from the still-under-construction Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, with Adam Irving, a friend and fellow Brandeis University alum who now lives out here and works as a documentary filmmaker. His feature directorial debut, 2016's Off the Rails, centers on Darius McCollum, a man with Asperger's syndrome who was jailed 32 times for impersonating New York City bus drivers and subway conductors and driving their routes. It was nominated for the Critics' Choice Documentary Award for Best First Documentary Feature. Adam, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. I love talking docs with you because in addition to making them, you're also a voracious consumer and student of them, I know. So I thought it would be fun to connect now in the aftermath of this year's Oscar nominations to talk about what the field looks like right now. To begin with, let's just state that the Best Documentary Feature Oscar nominees for this season are... Abacus Small Enough to Jail, Faces Places, Icarus, Last Men in Aleppo, and Strong Island. What do you make of that?
1: I think the big surprise there is that Jane is not on that list. I think that would have been the real crowd pleaser for Academy members that aren't in the dock branch. It's just an easy kind of fun film to watch with cute animals in Africa and a story that really doesn't challenge or make the viewer uncomfortable in a way that I I think a lot of film viewers prefer. It's hard to tell right now who the winner is. I don't think there's a a single clear winner the way there was in the past with, let's say, films like Amy. But I'd say if I had to pick two, it would be Strong Island or Icarus. I really think it's unlikely that the other three are going to win. We'll come
0: back to what's going to happen moving forward, but let's do a little postmortem on how we ended up with these five nominees, because basically just to let people know about the process, the documentary branch of the Academy are the sole people who winnowed down the list of eligible documentaries, which this season was 170, to a short list of 15, and then to a group of nominees of five. Now, at this point, it goes to the full Academy, including the doc branch, of course, but also everybody else, to pick the winner, so let's, let's try to figure out why a movie like Jane, which had been not only a, a crowd pleaser, but it also got a huge push from National Geographic. It also was winning a lot of other awards. In fact, just last night, even after its eligibility for the Oscar was exhausted, it still won the WGA award and also City of Ghost. I mean, what could be the explanation for two movies that were sort of dominant on the circuit are not here in the final round?
1: I think one explanation is the difference in the makeup of documentary branch voters versus general film union voters. Generally speaking, I think the doc branch voters are more politically aware, they're more liberal, they're not necessarily high-income or certainly not a lot of millionaires (laughs) in the doc branch the way they are in, in the actors' branches. And so a movie like Jane that is not political that stars a fairly educated white woman, and is about a, a fairly light subject relative to genocide in the Middle East, and directed by a straight white man who is a very talented filmmaker, Brett Morgan. Yes, and I don't think it's it's an active decision where the Doc Branch voters get together and say, "Hey, we need to reward people of color and women and minorities, and we can't nominate." filmmakers that are, you know, straight white men. I don't think it works that way. But I just think there is a feeling and even some pressure uh, at large in society for the nominations to reflect the general population of, of the country. So that's one explanation for Jane not being nominated.
0: Let's just note to your point about the particular diversity of the doc nominees. This year, you've got Strong Island, which is directed by Yancey Ford, who is making his directorial debut with this. Yancey is telling the story of the murder of his brother. Yancey is also openly transgender filmmaker, so there is some diversity in there. You've got Last Men in Aleppo, which I believe is also a feature directorial debut of a Middle Eastern filmmaker, Firas Fayyad. You have Faces Places, which is a French film doc from the 89-year-old legendary French New Wave filmmaker Agnes Varda, along with first-time filmmaker JR, who's a photographer. You also have Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, which unbelievably marks the first nomination in this category for Steve James, who had been screwed out of nominations in the past for Hoop Dreams and Life Itself. But this looks at an Asian family that was sort of perhaps unfairly implicated during the fallout from
1: 2008 recession and the regulation and legal battles that followed.
0: And then you have Icarus. So I want to run by you a theory that I have heard from a friend of mine who was nominated for a documentary short about Claude Lonsman a couple of years ago, Adam Benzine, who also writes about film very intelligently. His theory is that particularly with the case of Jane, he feels that there may be people in the branch who did not want to nominate Jane because they felt that if they did, it would win. In other words, because the doc branch is such a minority when it comes to picking the winner, they didn't want to give as one of the options to the larger Academy a film that they thought would beat something like, say, Strong Island, which seems to be the, the choice of the doc community based on precursor awards and all of that. Because when it goes to the full Academy, that would be the more widely appealing choice because it is, as you say, a very kind of audience friendly movie. And if somebody from one of the other branches of the Academy, they they might only see one nominee. And if they do, that was most likely to be Jane, perhaps. And that would mean that it would more easily beat something a little bit more challenging like A Strong Island. Do you think there's anything to his theory, which he's also writing about in an upcoming article for The Hollywood Reporter?
1: I agree that the non-documentary branch voters prefer lighter fare. The Academy Award winner a few years ago for Best Documentary was 20 Feet from Stardom, a feel-good documentary about backup singers. Not very much gravitas in that film, but because the entire Academy votes on Best Documentary, I believe that's one of the reasons is one, because it's very easy to watch and it's a lot of fun. let's just again note, because this is sort of to the point
0: that Adam Benzine is trying to make, I think the doc community's clear choice that year based on their precursor awards from things like, I think the IDA awards and cinema eye honors and stuff like that was Josh Oppenheimer's challenging film, The Act of Killing, about the Indonesian genocide of several decades ago, that is not going to be the first movie or perhaps one of the movies at all that other Academy members who don't have to watch stocks are going to pop in before voting. And so meanwhile, though, a fun movie about backup singers that features a lot of household names, rock stars and people talking about the importance of those musicians, That is going to be something they're more likely to pop in. That's not to say that that's not a great film as well, but I think it does support Adam Benzine's argument, as does the fact that, you know, if you look at the movies that have won best documentary feature over the years since 2012, when Michael Moore, as a governor of the doc branch of the Academy, sort of overhauled the rules and made it possible for all people in the Academy to vote for the winner of the Best Documentary Feature Oscar as opposed to just Doc Branch members. The winners have all been movies with sort of a mass appeal, and it's not just 20 Feet from Stardom. The winner for the year 2012 was Searching for Sugar Man, another music doc. Again, 2013, 20 Feet from Stardom, a music doc. Citizen Four in 2014, this was a very controversial look at Edward Snowden that was you know, widely publicized because it was the first look at Snowden, and everybody was talking and thinking about that. You had the next year, Amy, another music doc. And then last year, you had O.J. Made in America, which to me, aside from being a great movie, also benefited from something that I think in the animated short category, the movie Dear Basketball, is going to benefit from this year, which is sort of a home field advantage. Most voters are in and around L.A. So the argument here that Adam Benzine's making is that if you nominate Jane against these other films that did get nominated,
1: Even if Jane was the fifth choice of the Doc Branch, Jane's probably going to win. Most likely it would have, but the argument that the Doc Branch members are purposely not voting for films to sabotage them so that when voting goes to the entire Academy, they don't win Best Feature Documentary, I think is being a little bit too generous to strategies used by Doc Branch Academy voters. I think... They're not talking to each other as much as you may think, and they really do, for the most part, vote for their favorite films. So I think it's true that easier-to-watch films have a better shot at winning Best Documentary, but I don't think it's true that the Academy, the doc branch specifically, avoids voting for films that are easy to watch so that they're not rewarded later when the entire Academy votes on them.
0: And I have heard other theories that suggest that It could have been other things, like, for instance, Nat Geo ran a very robust campaign for this movie, which, you know, for the doc community, it's perhaps not something they're really accustomed to and maybe found a little over the top, something like doing the Los Angeles premiere of Jane at the Hollywood Bowl, taking over the Hollywood Bowl and doing a screening there and having Jane Goodall and inviting a ton of people there from the branch. It sort of skirted the rules or whatever. You know, it didn't clearly break any rules, but it was not something that we're used to seeing with docs. I thought it was a wonderful evening and I enjoyed being there, but I can understand that that might have raised eyebrows with others in the branch, but who knows? It was shocking though, to wake up and not see Jane as one of the five nominees when many of us thought it was likely to win. But let's turn to another change that happened in 2012 under the oversight of Michael Moore. And that was the way that even the shortlist for best documentary feature is determined and also what is even eligible to be considered for the shortlist. You know, this year, as I said, we had 170 films that were eligible for the shortlist of 15. There is a stat by a guy named Brian Glick, who worked for the Film Collaborative, which distributes some docs, a lot of, a lot of docs. And he basically argued that in the time since Michael Moore changed the way that docs could be considered for the shortlist something has happened that was sort of not his intention. Can you explain how the process worked before Michael Moore made the change and then also, you know, what the effect of his change has been?
1: So before the rules were changed in 2012, it was easier for a feature documentary to qualify for Academy consideration. All they had to do firstly was show in a movie theater for a week. Now, You have to show in a movie theater in a week, specifically in the borough of Manhattan as well as Los Angeles. You also have to take out a two-inch by one-inch ad in a print newspaper in New York and in Los Angeles, and you have to be reviewed by a film reviewer at both the New York Times and the LA Times. So, of the featured documentaries that met those qualifications, a small group or groups of volunteers would watch these documentaries. And so in theory, because an individual didn't have to watch all 100 or 150 films that qualified, every film ended up getting watched by one of these mini committees. And in the end, all of those films had a fair shot of getting nominated. So you, if you were a, quote, small film, you didn't have to spend thousands of dollars on an awards campaign before 2012 because you could essentially be guaranteed that these volunteers were going to give your film the same shot that the HBO films got.
0: Let's say there's 150 docs that were submitted. Maybe there would be 10 committees of volunteers or whatever. I don't know if it would be that many, but there would be committees that would divide up that number so that each committee, nobody was seeing everything, but that somebody was seeing everything. And they would then be rated between 6.0 and 10.0 at 0.5 increments, and based on the ratings, they would come up with the shortlist, right?
1: Correct. So the films that had the highest average rating of the committees would then get shortlisted and nominated, whereas now every member of the doc branch, which now numbers around two or 300, votes on the shortlist and nominated feature documentaries, and Those individuals can't possibly watch all 170 doc features that qualify every year. So the only films they're likely going to watch, since they don't have time to watch all of them, are films that they've heard of or films that are made by people that they know.
0: As I understand it, I think the doc branch members do get a suggested list that they're asked to each, you know, so they break up that 170 and they say, hey, please prioritize watching, you know, X number of them so that they, without telling you in the way that they used to, that these are the ones you're going to see, you know, they break it up and say, like, hopefully you will see these. And they also have a message board online where if somebody's seeing a great one, that's a little secret gem, they can talk about it. But you're absolutely right that if there's 170, the ones that get noticed are the ones that get recognized. And this is where Brian Glick's article comes in. And it's very interesting.
1: So if you are a Doc Branch voter and you're faced with watching all these films, as I said earlier, you're going to watch the ones you've heard of. So what does that mean, you've heard of it? Most likely, it means that it came to your attention because the film premiered at a top-tier festival, specifically Sundance, Toronto, Tribeca, New York, or Cannes. But in almost all cases, either just Sundance or Toronto. And if the film wasn't in any of those categories, which is very rare, it would have had to be distributed by either HBO or Netflix. If your documentary does not fit one of those five or six festivals or one of those two distributors, and you're not in that basket, statistically, over the last five years, you would have a 0% chance of being nominated for the Academy Award for Best Feature Documentary. So what this means is if you're not in that basket, you have to spend your own money on an awards campaign to get attention by putting ads in the trade papers and journals and magazines that doc filmmakers read and watch. And for a lot of smaller filmmakers and smaller distributors, that's very difficult. And frankly given the 0% likelihood of getting nominated in the end is a total waste of money.
0: Well, based on these five years that we're looking at, but the more daunting thing I I would imagine for someone like you two years ago with your doc is even if you do cough up a lot of money to have a bit of a campaign, you're still never going to be competing in the same league as a place like HBO or Netflix, particularly Netflix more recently, where, you know, to their credit, more power to them, but they really spend a lot to promote they're ducks, and and it works for them. They had four of the fifteen shortlisted films this year, and two of the five nominees. I mean, they run very aggressive campaigns. They have great films, but they also really support them.
1: They do. They are outspending their competitors probably by a ratio of two or three to one combined. So if you add if you added up the money spent on campaigns by Amazon. And, you know, the smaller distributors and Nat Geo, I would still wager that Netflix is spending multitudes more than all of them combined. Billboards. Yeah, their billboard. there their, their are individual billboards in Los Angeles, including one on Sunset Boulevard, where the budget just for that one billboard is in the hundreds of thousands for one year. That is the entire budget of my film. And that's mm-hmm. what they're spending on one billboard, where every two to six weeks they rotate what film they promote on that particular billboard.
0: Now, they would argue, I think, and I believe Lisa Nishimura, the head of Netflix Docs, who we had on this podcast recently, you know, argues that that is supporting the film and driving people to the service. And if it also helps them get nominated or shortlisted or whatever, or or to win, they love that. But their primary motivation in doing anything is to increase the number of subscribers to their service. So- I mean, at a certain point we get into semantics because it still
1: is impossible to compete. I would agree that, especially since these are documentaries and a lot of these are activist films, Netflix wants more people to watch them because they can make a difference in the world. And where I would disagree is if truly the only or the primary goal for their promoting these documentaries is getting more eyeballs on them, then why do they put so much money into billboards that are on streets that film executives and Oscar voters drive on, and not in billboards in Nebraska, where you're not going to have a single Academy voter. It's not a coincidence that almost all their billboards are in New York and Los Angeles, since that is where the bulk of Academy voters are.
0: I guess this year, the best example in support of Brian's rules of the road is a movie called ketty about cats and turkey, which did not meet the criteria that was mentioned, but had a lot else going for it. If ever a movie was gonna supposedly be able to overcome that and make overcome Brian's criteria and make the short list, one would think it would have been Ketty, right?
1: Yeah, Ketty was kind of a, a sleeper film. It didn't premiere at any top-tier festivals, but it went on to grow several million dollars theatrically, which is an enormous number for an independent documentary. And it, wa- it was nominated for more Critics' Choice Documentary Awards than any other documentary. And of course, people who love Cats were really, really into yeah, it. Yeah. And yet, because it wasn't picked up by Netflix or HBO, and it, wa- it did not premiere at Tribeca, New York, Toronto, Sundance, or Cannes, which is sort of Brian Glick's requirement yeah. mm-hmm. for being nominated... It just shows you that this rule holds up. Keddy did not get shortlisted or nominated for an Academy Award, despite making all this money and getting all these awards, because I think ultimately it just didn't get the attention of Academy voters because they're really only paying attention to those big splashy Sundance and Toronto premieres or those big, you know, uh seven-figure Netflix or Amazon acquisitions. And it didn't have that.
0: Something I do each year is the Savannah Film Festival's documentary contenders panel. This is in October, right around Halloween, before the shortlist voting occurs. And so even though we try to highlight some of these lesser seen gems like your film Off the Rails, like Keddie, it just seems like, you know, as you say, and as Brian suggests, without that big launch at a major film festival or the equivalent exposure through a cable or streaming service, it's almost like you're just set up to fail. It's
1: true. It just shows you that no matter how many people buy tickets to see your film, if they're not the right people, those few two, three hundred doc branch voters, you're just not going to get nominated.
0: Well, the bottom line is that these are the five nominees this year. Two of them, again, are Netflix, Strong Island and Icarus. In my opinion, like yours, those are the two strongest contenders. I believe Icarus has the advantage because I think it's likely to appeal to more of the whole academy than Strong Island. It is a movie about sports. It's a movie about doping. It's a movie about Russia all at a time when the Winter Olympics is going on and as has been widely reported is going on without much of a Russian presence because of Icarus which basically motivated the Olympic Committee to ban almost all Russians from these Olympic Games. And, you know, Netflix has been leaning into that. I think they, they just had a party last week for Icarus on the night of the Olympics opening ceremony to which, you know, tastemakers, including, I'm sure, Academy members, as well as former Olympians were invited. And then, not coincidentally, again, because of timing, last night, a Sunday night, Dr. Gregory Ruchenko, the subject of Icarus, who has otherwise been in essentially the Witness Protection Program, was featured on 60 Minutes. So they have, I'm sure, had to have some internal Conversations about how do we approach this? We don't want to short shrift Strong Island either. But in a way, I think they have less of an uphill climb with the whole Academy
1: when it comes to
0: Icarus than they do
1: with Strong Island. I agree that Icarus is not only an easier film to watch than Strong Island, but it is also more timely. Strong Island is really hinging its support on the Black Lives Matter movement, which is by no means a fad, but like every movement, you know ebbs and flows in the way that it gets attention from the media and and popular support and i think that the black lives matter movement just felt like a bigger deal around this time last year when 13th was in contention for this award so i think that had strong island come out last year its chances would have been better we are in the middle of the olympics and days away from oscar voting so that really puts icarus at an advantage in addition to it being just a more palatable film for most viewers in the Academy. For both you and me, I think
0: our argument kind of hinges upon the idea on the assumption that those are, as Netflix docs, likelier to be watched by people who are outside of the documentary branch of the Academy, who are in other branches and who now get to weigh in, likelier to be watched by them than something like Last Men in Aleppo or abacus small enough to jail. But I do want to note that for whatever it's worth, I happen to be shown some odds from various betting sites at the moment. And what they're indicating is their favorite right now is actually Faces Places. And I find that to be harder to understand. It has absolutely been much more of a presence on year-end top 10 lists of critics overall I think there's sort of the snob factor there with it's Agnes Varda, you know, in the same way that even when Paul Thomas Anderson or somebody makes like inherent vice, you can count on the critics to be there for him. She's one of these people who, you know, I, I am in no way meaning to knock her movie that she made with Jr. here, but I don't know that it has the same potential appeal with people who are not already adherents of hers or the French New Wave or whatever. Here, I don't see this movie, aside from being a French-language movie and kind of not having an, uh, an easy logline, I, I just don't see it being as easy a sell to people to even check out as these others that we were discussing. Do you agree
1: with that? Yeah. Along with City of Ghosts, Faces Places was really the, the darling of the documentary awards season. So I'm talking about the Cinema Eye honors, and the IDA Awards. And these are awards that are not as well known to the larger filmmaking community, but in the documentary world, those awards carry a lot of weight. What they don't do is necessarily predict if a film is going to win or even be nominated for an Academy Award. For example, the film Dina, which was at Sundance, won Best Feature Documentary at the IDA Awards, the International Documentary Awards, and wasn't even shortlisted. Right. Well, that's bizarre because that
0: supposedly, you know, as you say, that should be in no way predictive of the full Academy's choice of a winner, but you would think that the IDA Awards is somehow correlative with the documentary branch of the Academy, that they are, they're both representative in some way of the documentary community. So the idea that it could win there and then not even be shortlisted I don't know how to explain that, do you?
1: Yeah, the reason is because the International Documentary Association Awards are voted on by a small group of volunteers for each category. I was asked to vote on a certain category one year, and I believe there were just a handful of other judges who were to vote with me. And when the sample of volunteers is that small, you can have some very odd choices, especially if they're meeting as a group and one of... The voters in the group sort of strong arms the other voters into liking a film that's their favorite. So, as I said earlier, City of Ghosts and Faces Places were really championed by the doc community. But I just don't see the, the non-doc voters in the Academy loving Faces Places because it is an art film. And every year there seems to be one art film that gets nominated or something like an art film, but I've never seen one win the Oscar because those films for a lot of people are just hard to sit through because they're not structured in a conventional story with a hero who has barriers they have to overcome or some sort of mystery that's unraveled. They're really just sort of classic cinema verite films of just interesting stuff that happens. And through that, we learn interesting things. But that's not everyone's cup of tea.
0: And unlike Strong Island and Icarus, they're not just a click away. For these others, you actually have to get off your ass and put in the screener or fire it up and log into your Academy account and play it there. With Strong Island and Icarus, you know, here's the Netflix factor. You could just be, you know, sitting on your couch or lying in bed. And it's there, whether you're an Academy member or not. So I think that at a time when the Academy is becoming more and more of an international organization than ever before, through a concerted effort to do that, you know, to have a service that reaches all but four countries or something in the entire world, I think that may be an advantage.
1: Yeah, if you're an Academy voter and you're uh, on vacation and you don't have your pile of 170 movies to watch or at a hotel, you can just go on your laptop or your phone and watch the nominees that are in the Netflix catalog. So it really puts them at an advantage.
0: And even when they've now at this point in the season as as you know, as they have winnowed it down to the five, yes, every Academy member can log into their account and they have just a click away at that point you know, on their laptop or whatever, they can watch... Any of these. But again, people don't want to watch movies necessarily on their laptop. Or even though it isn't that hard necessarily to connect your laptop to your TV or whatever, these are not necessarily all young tech savvy folks. It's still that one more barrier for entry that a film that's on Netflix doesn't have to deal with. So look, we'll find out on March 4th if any of this is true. Watch it end up being Last Men in Aleppo and then we can all eat crow. But I, I do think that this is an important year and important test for Netflix. I guess it's also sort of going to be hard to read because it does, you know, there's the potential that Netflix viewers split their support between these two and something else happens. But it is certainly an interesting time of change for the doc community. I agree. Adam Irving, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now for my interview with Willem Dafoe. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter in Los Angeles, the 62-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how his life and career have been shaped by his work in the theater, especially the Worcester Group, an experimental theater collective operating out of a loft in Soho, of which he was an integral part from 1977 through 2004, how he thinks his unconventional face has shaped the opportunities that have come his way, particularly early on when he played villains in Streets of Fire to Live and Die in L.A. and Wild at Heart, and how he has always worked to avoid being typecast, why he so often finds himself in the middle of projects that prove controversial, from The Last Temptation of Christ to, say, virtually any of his collaborations with Lars von Trier, what it was like sharing the screen with much less experienced actors, ranging from six-year-old phenom Brooklyn Prince to 20-something Instagram discovery Bria Vanate in The Florida Project, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Foe, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate my it. pleasure. We always begin just with the basics. Where were you born and raised?
2: And what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Appleton, Wisconsin in 1955. My father was a gastrointestinal surgeon and my mother was a nurse and they often worked together.
0: I read that you are the 7th of 8. That That's is right. quite a, a big brood. How does that shape a person, do you
2: think? In my case, it depends, on your, yeah, your position. I'm toward the end, and I think my parents first started out as kind of Eisenhower Republicans, and by the time they got down to May, uh, they changed quite a bit. <laughs> they let a lot of stuff go. Yeah. And so my experience in that family was very much different than my eldest sister's, for example, basically because my parents worked together. It was in no way a a beaver cleaver household. We never had dinner together. It was chaos. My sisters brought me up. So it was a very particular way to grow up with a very strong presence of the parents, but they weren't really around much. Well, you've said that you've never really had close
0: male friends because most of your life you've been surrounded by females, right? I thought that was interesting.
2: I think that's true. And also, you know, the other is where it's at. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I can look in a mirror if I need a male friend.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So how does a guy end up with the name Willem in the 20th century?
2: It's kind of strange. My father was William Mm -hmm. and I had a good relationship with him. Don't get me wrong. I'm not (laughs) trying to escape that connection. But a big family, you know, I'm not liking Billy You know, there's no good name for me except for Bill, basically. So I'm in search of a nickname, and I find it. One of my more Baroque friends, when I'm a teenager, called me Willem. You know, it was uh, said with a flourish, and that kind of stuck. And then by the time I was performing, I don't like the idea of a stage name, but by the time I was performing, I didn't feel like William or Bill, so I just, kept it and of course the irony is it's not my name. That's how people has would... it not legally been changed to William no, no. still William. Yeah, yeah, it's still a pain if i you know go on a flight or something and something gets mixed up and (laughs) they don't check my passport you know i I, I, there's trouble getting on the flight that's
0: funny well so you mentioned when you started performing when was that i mean was it just a normal school kid kind of thing or
2: pretty much pretty much but you know growing up in wisconsin i didn't know anybody who made their living as a performer as an artist or even involved in any way with the entertainment business so it wasn't really a viable thought for me mm-hmm. thinking I'd do that. I thought this is what I like to do, and when I found out what I wanted to do, I'd train and I'd do that. But that never happened. I well, just kept on doing it.
0: Well, there was also, a, a, I would imagine, a pretty big turning point in your life when maybe you can explain how did you get uninvited, disinvited from high school? Yeah. <laughs>
2: Uh, It was in the beginning of my, very beginning of my senior year, and I took a communications class. And we were, the basic idea was to play with video, because video was just starting to come in, home video stuff, to teach us how to edit, how to shoot, you know, with a big old video cam. And at that time, magazine shows, like 60 Minutes, were kind of a new thing. And basically, I wanted to make a magazine show of some of the people in our school, which was actually quite a large school for, mm-hmm. for a town of only 60,000. So I profiled three people. One considered himself a Satanist, one considered himself a nudist, and one considered himself a crusader for legalizing marijuana. I interviewed these three people. And when I interviewed them, we were very free with how we shot You can imagine, very free with the nudist, the Satanist, talked a lot about sexuality. But I was intending to cut these things. I went out for lunch one day. A teacher went in, saw what was on the little editing bay. And when I came back, the door was locked. And I was told to report to the principal's office. I I did. And they said, you've been making pornography, (laughs) which wasn't true at all. And I was just so fed up and also a little fed up that my parents didn't support me better on it Mm -hmm. that basically I left town and I slept on a friend's couch in Milwaukee and then started taking courses at the university there because you could Mm -hmm. and stayed there for a couple months and then I started working with a small theater company. Well, this small theater company
0: they started working with, as I understand it, these were some... Friends of yours already who had decided to form a collective, or not
2: quite in Milwaukee. I was only with this company for a couple of years. It was a company called Theater X. Mm-hmm. They were making original work, but they were still basically plays, and they were very committed. And for me, they were very. It was very exciting because it was very hands-on. You know, they were they ran their own theater. They had a small space in downtown. And they invited me to join them. And I thought I was only going to be there for one show. And I ended up being there for a couple of years until I moved to New York. Well, to connect those two dots, if we can, I
0: I guess the Theater X group would travel a little bit, right? Yes. And so you end up in Baltimore. Right. How do you meet a guy by the name of Richard Checkner? Checkner? Yeah. And how did that lead you to New York?
2: He had seen a performance and he was, in my mind, we had a small press bookstore in our theater with lots of beautiful theater magazines, both foreign and national. You know, I was reading things like Tulane Drama Review and I was reading about Grotowski and Richard Foreman and Bob Wilson and people like that and also among them. Group theaters, like the performance group. Richard Schechner was the head of the performance group. So when I met him, he said, listen, if you happen to be in New York, look me up, you know, because I like you and maybe we can do something. And you were already familiar with him from that literary material. Yes, yes. But only theoretically, because I hadn't seen shows. But I was very turned on about what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Similarly to Bob Wilson, Foreman, Grotowski, Many people I was reading about and seeing pictures and what they were talking about thrilled me very much. So I really eventually headed to Mecca, New York. <laughs> uh, but very schizophrenic because I, by that time I did want to be an actor and I really intended to make my living that way. And I wasn't aware of this whole downtown theater scene even though I had been reading about these directors. So I intended to be a commercial theater actor. But then... When I had free time, I'd go downtown and I saw stuff that really excited me and people that excited me, and before you know it, I was working at this place called the Wooster Group.
0: Just to give people a sense of time here i guess this was 1977 when you first went to new york
2: i went first 75 but then i went back to work with theater x and then 77 for good yes and
0: in 77 i guess you're 22
2: 22
0: the performance group morphed into the worcester group when Schechner left that's correct and at that point it's operating out of a Garage in Soho? Is yeah,
2: that- a converted theater space. It was a metal stamp factory, very high ceilings, a good performance space, and a base. It's really what made the Wooster Group survive, and it, it, it still survives because we had a home and nobody could, you know, we couldn't take salaries. All our money would go to paying the mortgage. We had to find other ways to survive, but we had a place where we could work, and we worked daily and we worked full days. So to anyone out there that wants to start a theater company, get a space. <laughs> yeah, that's the key. And I mean, though, it's
0: interesting that one way it's been described, and please correct me if any of this is wrong, but this sure. was in a New York Times piece about the Worcester Group. The things that you guys did were, were, quote, theatrical collages, splicing classic plays with other texts and filtering them through contemporary media technology, film, video, high-tech sound, and non-naturalistic performing styles from vaudeville to kabuki, and That being the case, who was the audience when you guys would not really publicize your performances? As a matter of course, that was not something you did and you didn't invite critics.
2: Well, no, let me correct you just a little bit. The critics, we didn't find critical support. You know, we would show shows while we were developing them. We would show them in progress. It was a way to discipline us to, you know, get it structured and get it together. Otherwise, the process probably would go on forever because we're making original work. So, people would come, and occasionally, at the beginning, once we decided to open, critics would come, and normally the the response was very rough <laughs> and and misrepresented us. So finally, the director Elizabeth LeComte really. Took the strategy that we wouldn't allow critics to write about it because we had, she said, and it bothered me because I, I was ambitious, you know, she said, We're a community theater. It just happens that our community is Soho in New York City. So our audience was a community of artists and painters and musicians at a time where there was a lot going on. So it was a very thrilling time. And we had a very loyal, hardcore, interesting audience. It was small. But it grew. And then with time, yes, we didn't allow critics to come and review it. And that that didn't bother them because they didn't like it anyway. (laughs) But then we also toured a great deal. We found a lot of support internationally. So then critics started seeing us in the context of like a European group. They'd see us in Paris and they'd see that we'd do very well. They'd see us in Berlin. They see that we'd do very well. And then they started to claim us. And then they started to write about us. Right. Then they started to ask to review the pieces. And then generally speaking, they started to treat us well and support us. So you
0: mentioned a name of someone who I have to ask you about, because I think from the time you joined the group for the next 27 years, it was a Pretty major relationship in your life. Yes, Elizabeth LeCompte, who I, from what I gather, succeeded Schechner. You were 22 when you started there again. She was 33. Right. You've said she was, quote, much better educated and more intellectual, close quote, and that she also taught you more about acting than anyone you'd known up to that point. What were the biggest takeaways of your time in that theater? Because I think when you... You wound up, obviously, getting into screen acting, but I don't think that was the game plan for a while.
2: That wasn't the game plan. I've always liked movies, but I thought being an actor, you know, and this is conditioned, what's available to me and what, how I want to pursue things, I my plate was full. I was totally turned on. I was in a room with people that I was interested in. We were making things that were interesting. I felt like I was learning things. I, I wasn't looking outside of that space. And then... Some people saw me. I mean, to make the story simple, there were little degradations of this, but basically, the big event to introduce me into movies was that Catherine Bigelow and Monty Montgomery were casting a movie, a very low budget movie called The Loveless, which Mm -hmm. was Catherine's first feature with Monty Montgomery. And they said, Do you want to make this movie?
0: On the basis of seeing you in one of these Western group productions.
2: Yeah. And I said yes. And then when I, I, I loved working with her and Monty, and I had a wonderful time. And said I want to do more of this. And
0: so it became for for many many years, going back and forth between the two, right? Back
2: and forth. Now, now keep in mind, there was a, there was, they were initially very supportive, and also it allowed me to. I never took a salary from there, but I, I could also bring in stuff not only money, but I could bring, you know, it would be like I'd go out in the world, I'd do promotion in uh, Japan for a movie, and I'd see No, and then I'd get some fabrics, and I'd get some tapes on No, and I'd bring that home. And so it was a good influence to have me go out of the house and then come back. (laughs) But at the same time, We worked all the time. So it started to eat into our process and it became difficult because I wanted to do both things and they were, we tried to make it work and Elizabeth LeCompte was very good at accommodating what's in the room, but it got to the point where it got a little lopsided. So even before you had your first substantial
0: film role in in Loveless, which would have been 83, Mm -hmm. people saw it, it was made
2: in 79, I think. It, it no, in 80.
0: Okay, because that's what I was going to ask you, because what I'm aware of is that you, very soon after joining the Worcester Group, I guess, actually did another movie that, in a way, <laughs> <Say it. laughs> I'm going to say it, it's Heaven's Gate, and I got to know. It, it, the I may, story? May, well, yeah, because.
2: I'm pretty you, practiced at the story how I've do you,
0: it a few times. <laughs> so the question, how do you get in it, and then how do you get out of it? <laughs>
2: Well, you know, listen, sometimes people come to theater, sometimes they'd be casting things, and just not solely for money, but, you know, you wanted to, you were curious about other things, but it wasn't what you were actively pursuing. I remember someone said, hey, they're looking for ethnic faces to (laughs) play kind of this chorus of people that in this movie this western so that when there's a big battle at the end you really fe- know these people you know the the, the crowd has a, a face you know so these were people that were going to be weaved through the movie in these basically glorified extra roles but they were slowly beefed up and and so in the end you you felt the community it's a good idea you know i went there the first thing they did is because i didn't have an agent or anything i negotiated my own contract, you know. They had what what you call a daily rate. I was only supposed to be there for like two weeks altogether. Mm-hmm. A little here, a little there, a little here, a little there, a little back and forth. The theater's waiting for me. Mm-hmm. I get there. They rip up my contract, and they say, listen, that daily, forget it. We're going to put you on something called a weekly, which is much less uh-huh. uh, a <laughs> good deal. And then they say, and also... We want to keep you here, which is great news because it's this beautiful period western. Michael Chimino's at the top of his game. Uh, he's working with great actors. It's fun. It's, it's exciting. He, they, they've just won the Oscar, you know. For There's a lot military, of attention yeah. on it, right? Yeah. So I'm half happy to be there, but also I'm thinking, oh my God, what's this going to do to the theater? But the theater was very patient and they waited. And I stayed there for a long time. I mean, what was supposed to be like three months turned into like an eight-month shoot. Oh, my God. Now, for better or for worse, one day, three months into it, we're sitting in an actors-in-place lighting setup. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting there in full costume and makeup. We're not even going to shoot. We're just adjusting the lights. We're standing there. You raise your hand if you have to go pee or something like that. (laughs) So we're standing there. And a woman uh, next to me whispered a joke to me now keep in mind this is 3 months in and michael Cimino is starting to be pressured by the mm-hmm. studio because the the budget is ballooning the, the the schedule is ballooning he's got a lot he's under a lot of tension i liked working with him mm-hmm. and i did work with him in a substantial way in those mm-hmm. 3 months well anyway she whispers in my ear i laugh out loud and look at her, and to acknowledge the joke, I also stick up my tongue. Laugh too loud, Michael Cimino whirls around at the noise, looks at me, basically fires me on the spot, says, Willem, step out, and everybody's like, because by that point, people are very frightened because there's a lot of tension on the set. You all realize there were problems. Yes, oh, very much, very much. So then I go back to the I say, what's going on? They said, nothing, nothing, just go back to your hotel room. And I went to my hotel room, and then I'm presented with a plane ticket, and they say, you're, you're done, you're wrapped, great, thank you, thank you. And I'm like, what happened? Can I talk to Michael? No, no, it's perfect, you're, you're done, you're done. But essentially I was fired. Did you ever have a chance to talk to him again? I did. He asked me to do something in desperate hours. I couldn't do it for scheduling reasons but yes i i saw him uh, a couple times afterwards but i'm sure that must have pissed you off at the time it did and it was humiliating and you know this little downtown guy that you know, too big for his britches, tries to get a little part in a Hollywood movie. You know, I got spanked, you know, and for and, all
0: you knew that could have been the last one
2: at yeah. that point. Oh, right? absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned the reason they wanted you for that was
0: that you had a, a distinctive and in their, in their words, I guess, ethnic looking face. I want to ask you, you know, your first roles after Loveless really was your first big one. Then you subsequently you had the gang leader in Walter Hill's Streets of Fire, 1984.
2: Which was really significant because that was my first studio film, and Walter was fantastic. And that movie, although it didn't perform initially, is a movie that really stays for a lot of people.
0: Definitely. And then right after that was the counterfeiter in when Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A., which is 85. So in the New York Times review of the latter, it is written of you, quote, He's a fine actor with a face that will bring him villains' work forever, close quote. Mm. Now, you do have a, a very distinctive face. You've mm-hmm. talked about it in other interviews. Sure. A, un, unusual face. A lot of people think it's very sexy. Some people find it menacing. Different Some takes. Some people find it ugly. Uh, ugly? <laughs> well, you know, the, screw them. But, I mean, do you think, though, that it actually is the the reason that some of these earlier roles before Platoon, let's say, that you were moving in the, in the direction of being categorized as a villainous actor.
2: Absolutely. And and the truth is, then the really great roles are villains, unless you're like, you know, conventionally handsome or you're particularly charming in a very, you know, naturalistic way so you can play in family dramas and things like that. The really muscular, fun emotional roles tended to be villains. Mm -hmm. And also you gotta remember I'm growing up in a period where I want to be an artist. I'm living downtown. I'm 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 a middle class kid that, you know, drops two social classes. I'm 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 reading political stuff that I never you know, I'm I'm feeling like an outsider a little bit. So those roles kind of suit me more because they're I'm identifying with them more to challenge the way things are as opposed to be the hero or the person that's upholding the way things are. So kind of iconoclastic or outside roles are more interesting to me. But I think after a certain amount of time, you know, you do something and if you have any success or people respond, they want you to do it again, Mm -hmm. again, again, again. And that can kill you because habit can make you, you know, it can brand you, but it as an actor, it can limit you. And you start to have a less flexible approach as what your body, what your face, what your heart, what your impulses can be.
0: So was it a particularly welcome thing to to get a call, I imagine, from Oliver Stone? Granted, he wasn't yet Oliver Stone, but it was still, it was Oliver Stone presumably reaches out and says, we want you to be in platoon, not as the bad guy, that's Tom Berenger. You're going to be the angelic good guy who has to eventually confront this guy for for being such a bad guy
2: it's going to be hard to believe but i'm not thinking about those things i'm worried about typecasting but at the same time when oliver asks me to do the role in platoon i'm not like oh goody a good guy i don't know what this guy is i don't know what he is until i do it Mm -hmm. the truth is i'm excited but i'm excited about the script. I'm excited about going to the Philippines to shoot. I'm excited working with Oliver, who, when I met him, was unlike anyone I had met in Hollywood. In what way? He seemed to be his own man. He seemed uh, to have a chip on his shoulder. You know, he, he had a fight in him. And in the context of doing this movie, it was a very personal story that he owned, and he had a burning desire to tell it. And I knew... We were going to train hard and we were going to be, you know, the agents. We were going to be the creatures of these people to tell this very important story. So that felt good on so many levels. So, yes, in retrospect, I can we can imagine that I'd say, oh, good, good. A little change of pace. But I couldn't even appreciate that.
0: You got a rude awakening when you landed
2: in the Philippines, right? Uh, Yeah, I, (laughs) I arrived. My plane was the last plane in. A revolution had happened
0: not before you landed you get there you go to your hotel
2: and i hope i I took a little nap because i was flying from new york and i was pretty jet and i opened the shades and i looked out and there were tanks on the streets (laughs) then i turned on the tv and it was all marcus on one channel the rebel on, on the other channel then i called down to the hotel desk and they said just sit tight don't go anywhere (laughs) and then the producer Alex Ho called me and said sit tight we'll get you out the movie's canceled but just sit tight but there were some of us there and we hung out until the revolution ended and of course it was a very happy story because it was basically a non there was some fighting but it was basically a non-violent revolution the people were very happy because they felt like they had a voice well,
0: not many movies have that kind of backstory. But that's <laughs> no. a, so you, this movie, though, gets made and is so well-received and ultimately brings you your first Oscar nomination and the film wins Best Picture and yes. all this stuff. Yes. But I wonder if there's even another connective dot between that one and then the next big one that you had two years after it came out. Because at the end of, or, you know, in Platoon, your character, spoiler alert, 30 plus years later, dies in a, I know it was a complex technical thing for you to have this happen the way it happens, but basically dies looking like a Christ-like figure. Do you think that planted the seed in Martin Scorsese's head that maybe this guy can be my Jesus for Last Temptation of Christ? It's a good question.
2: I think not necessarily. I remember when they were casting Last Temptation and they saw everybody They saw all my friends. They saw all (laughs) major actors of that age. And I was never seen. And I think they tried to make it. They tried to make it with Aidan Quinn. But for various reasons, timing, money, I don't know, it didn't happen. Then when they reconfigured it, I think they had to cast very quickly. And the way I heard it was really the film that convinced him was To Live and Die in L.A. Really? Strangely enough. Yeah. And equally, To Live and Die in L.A. is the film that Oliver Stone cites as being the one that interested in him and me. Wow, for Platoon. So... so- you know, amazing. these are artists. Yeah, They can see things that some people can't see. Right. <laughs>
0: that is amazing, though. It makes me want to go back right now and watch Live and Die in L.A. Because,
2: just... you know, this, this thing of good and bad is a little overrated. It's right. a kind of lazy categorization. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, basically that Christ character, in the way that story is told, he's a revolutionary, and he's a common man, and he's rooted. So it's not just about looking for virtuous qualities – they're seeing something else.
0: Well, you've also said that as written for that film, he is a very reactive character. True. And that requires certain skills to be able to do. So maybe there was something that they saw in those in in To Live and Die or, or you know, something else that led to that right. part of it. But for various reasons, Jesus having sex with Mary Magdalene, other things, there was a furor mm-hmm. that this film caused protest from the religious right calls for bans of the film, all kinds of stuff. Were you surprised by that response?
2: I was, because it basically, you know, you may not agree with how the story is, you may not like it, but, you know, there's all kinds of movies out there. There's porn, there's slasher movies, there's mean-spirited movies. This is a movie that is exploring spirituality and, and the flesh versus the, you know, the spiritual part of a man. The reception of a movie and how movies are made of, uh, you know, a convergence of so many things. And I just think the religious right at that moment seized an opportunity and, and focused on this movie, and it became a point of focus to kind of rally around. It articulated their message against Hollywood and against people that they felt, you know, were at odds with them. So I don't think they really reacted to the movie. Classically, they were banning the movie before they even saw it. Right, right. So it was the idea. So it was more, you know, the struggle between organized religion and religion that's very politicized and very involved with, you know, capital against another, the entertainment industry. Yeah,
0: and it's it's kind of interesting to me that Martin Scorsese is actually a pretty religious guy and there were 28 years later He still he he spent the next 28 years trying to get this next one about religion silence made yes. so it's not like he was coming from a place a, that a, wasn't genuine
2: a glib or a, a mean spirit right. it, it was very i you know i was surprised because our approach was very sincere you know the stories changed the stories changed to get to the truth i mean Richard Foreman once told me, a director that I've worked with, he said, a theater director, beautiful, makes beautiful theater. He said, stories hide the truth. <laughs> <laughs> and that's hard to wrap our brain yeah. around because we use the word story in so, in so many ways. But I'm down with that a little bit. So sometimes you have to adjust the agreed on story or adjust the agreed on perception of things as they are to really get to what's behind it
0: yeah the next few years your profile which had obviously between platoon and last temptation had already grown a lot it continued to grow with mississippi burning i think you were on the cover of time magazine Mm -hmm. for that one born on the 4th of july it's oliver again and this time with tom cruise which means it's going to get a lot of attention as well and then even though it wasn't the biggest part maybe the biggest creep that you ever played in wild at heart with the Bobby I, Peru. Bobby Peru. <laughs> it's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful part. Yes. And how did you acclimate to being a, a much more, you know, well-known person when it, it seems like in your actual core, you are very happy kind of toiling anonymously in a Worcester group or somewhere else.
2: Well, that's part of it, but I also am ambitious and I do, I do. I The movie bug has hit me. Not so much the fame bug, but I want opportunities, so sometimes they're sort of linked. you got to remember, in those days, a movie opens, and it's before people pretty much for the run of the movie theatrically. Yes, there's VHS and all that, but it's much more diffused. So when a movie comes out, you're in the eye for the length. It's in theaters. That, of course, has all changed. Yes. But in those days, it would be like you'd be well-known for a little while, and then you could go back to your little place and and, and work undisturbed. And that was kind of the pattern. I mean, I'm not going to cry on your shoulders. I've been very lucky. But, you know, in those days, uh, even with some successes, I my identity was still. I was this guy, uh, you know, I was not living a Hollywood lifestyle i was not having dinner with steven spielberg <laughs> i was working in this little theater downtown and i was working with great artists mm-hmm. i was working the other side of the fence you know but i wasn't part of the industry so that's not i didn't have an attitude about that that just wasn't my reality would you
0: have wanted to be did any part of that appeal Oh, to i you? think
2: i yes of course As I said, because it creates opportunities. So I was trying to find work, but also at the same time, because I was keeping the theater going and I was, that was very important to me. I had to be very selective. Mm -hmm. Also, I've never had a good career sense, but I do have a good sense of people. And I've I've always been very attracted to situations and strong directors. Mm -hmm. And that has always served me well, because if you're in the room with people, that excite you and stimulate you and you are interested in finding out how they work and what they see then it's always gratifying because in the end nobody remembers grosses you know <laughs> as an actor nobody remembers grosses right. nobody even remembers how much you get paid right. you know all that stuff yes it has its allure and yes i want that but i want that to create new opportunities. Because if you're a bummer, you're perceived as someone that is not attractive to audiences or or has never made a movie that plays, then it's a problem. It limits your opportunities. But somewhere fundamentally, I like to work and I like to be around people that stimulate me. Punto. That's it. That's the (laughs) end of the story.
0: Well, in film, no one would ever say you had a limited range of opportunities that you pursued, because let's just give a few examples of how all over the map over those next few years, in the best sense they were. T.S. Eliot in Tom and Viv, 1994, you're the one American in a sea of Brits, and in a way it was a that was perfect for the character, right? This is a guy who is an American who wants to be with his accent and everything, wants to fit in with that group, right?
2: Yes. And that was, the, that was, I've always been attracted to being in, to working in other cultures or working in other ways, because I think it gives you the possibility to transcend your own cultural conditioning. It allows you to learn other people's way of doing things and and trying them on for size. And you usually learn something, and there's usually, you know, it's like, it's like falling in love, you see, with new eyes. So you have a different energy and a different reason to be. And that's once you know that feeling, you're always searching for that, to be in a situation that doesn't necessarily support who you are, identity-wise, but supports what you love in your sense of what is important, what is beautiful, what matters.
0: Two years after that, nineteen ninety six, you are David Carvaggio in *The English Patient*. This is the second movie you did that won the Best Picture Oscar. This one, though, it was interesting. Even in its own time, was very divisive. On the one hand, you've got very soon after you know this famous Seinfeld episode where they're you know all about that movie. On the other hand, you don't win Best Picture solely through marketing or other things. A lot of people had to really like it. What was your experience on that one with
2: Miguela? It was a very good experience, partly because we were shooting in Italy. That was my first experience. Where you now spend a lot of your time, yes, right? Yes, yes. I met a lot of actors on that movie that I remained friends with. The part was very interesting. I must say that usually you don't like to comment on movies once they're made. But I will say that both the Kip role, played by Naveen Andrews, the Indian character east indian character and my character had more interesting things to do and we shot them and but i think they were somewhat sacrificed just because the narrative is very multi-layered and they really decided to go with the romantic love story Mm -hmm. and mm, good on them because people responded to that but i did feel bad that the most you know is i probably shouldn't even mention it but I did feel bad that some things that we shot did not make it into the cut the cut was quite radical for me we Uh we shot a lot more than was in there but it was a good experience Anthony was a lovely guy very committed very gentle it was a good experience
0: another amazing thing about you is that your fan base I think demographically is probably as diverse as as anybody's and to that point, the Boondock Saints is a cult favorite of people who I don't know if they would ever watch Tom and Viv,
1: but, you know, so.
0: <laughs> but they love this. And, they, and and you're great in it as an FBI agent. You've played a few FBI agents over, over time. But anything about that one? Just because, can you believe that, you know, of, of all the movies that end up having a long life, would you ever have imagined that would be one that people are...
2: Uh, You know, once again, I don't think about that so much. But, you know, I was aware that Troy Duffy was a little bit of a phenomenon that Harvey Weinstein created because he was on the cover of magazines. And even before he shot a foot of film, because Troy was a bartender that loved movies and wrote a script for a movie that he wanted to make. And people really responded to it. There was a huge bidding war when he gave it to an agent that was a customer to, of his, and the script got out there. Harvey Weinstein won that bidding war and started to grease the publicity machine for in anticipation of this kind of new Tarantino right, or something, right. you know. But they didn't see eye to eye, and in the end, Troy was quite tenacious and and didn't like the casting ideas. They had trouble casting. They they. F- thought of casting in lots of different ways so eventually that went into turnaround and some guys picked it up and put it together and it was totally risky but i liked the role yeah. and i remember troy came from los angeles to wooster group to see a show a show that he probably it was interesting because it wasn't probably the kind of show that he would normally right, see right. but he had interesting comments troy is very sharp He's very sharp he's a smart guy so i just hopped on board and we made this movie that's structured in an interesting way and it's a, a interesting character and i just had fun with it
0: it seems like it would have been fun all right so this leads into the into the movie for which you get oscar nomination number two and it's really one of the most out there but brilliant and creative that i could think of and that is as Max Shrek in the $6 million Shadow of the Vampire indie where, just to remind people, I guess the the general premise here is that for the 1921 horror movie Nosferatu, which actually exists, obviously, Murnau did not actually hire an actor to play a vampire. He hired a vampire to play himself. And that's you as Max Shrek. Even in that synopsis, it sounds insane. And yet... (laughs) It was great
2: I, I, I it was a very good time, a beautiful role, a beautiful opportunity for an actor because I worked from a model. I had Max Schre to yeah. copy
0: what <laughs> there wasn't much known about him right
2: no but but I have the movie Nosferatu. Yes, yes. I, I I can copy that thing. Right. There's yes. something outside of myself that's very concrete that I can transform myself into and I have very very heavy prosthetics and a very specific costume. So when I get in that thing, I am really able to leave myself behind because it's such a radical transformation. I don't look like myself. I don't feel like myself. And it invites different impulses. And he's got like these long fingernails. So then you, you have to use your hands differently. And then there were all these opportunities to ride these different impulses. But at the same time, you had this kind of rooting aspect of a very clear model, so it was actor heaven because it was pure doing. Right. I didn't have to think, which sounds like heresy, but I'm all I'm all about doing, right. and the thinking comes out of the doing. I, I feel much more like a dancer and athlete sometimes than I do a person that goes down and breaks down a script for psychological beats. It's all in the doing and and placing yourself in a way that you can be receptive to that doing. Very interesting. So one
0: thing that a lot of people have remarked upon is the frequency and seeming ease with which you go between really gritty little indies, art house movies like A Shadow of the Vampire with bigger commercial studio movies. And in 2002, I think that was really encapsulated as well as any time when in the same year you did autofocus with Paul Schrader, who you've worked with more than I think anybody else, any other director, more at least a half dozen times. And in that case, just to remind people, this is a the pal of the Hogan's hero actor Bob Crane, who joins him for some sexual adventures and later is accused of murdering him. But in the same year, you can go and do what turned out to be the first of the modern day comic book adaptation blockbusters, Spider-Man, as Norman Osborn slash Green Goblin. So how do you explain, some people would say, oh, is is it sort of the, you know, one for me, one for them no, model, or no. you just truly are drawn to both I, sorts?
2: I, I like both. I like both. Your job is different. What's required of you different. Uh, the movie has different intentions and the way of making them is different. But it's all pretending, it's all adapting, it's all being in a room with people and making something. So it's all performing, and I like to mix it up. And the nice thing is, you know, Spider-Man doesn't know about autofocus, and autofocus (laughs) doesn't know about Spider-Man. So, like, I'm a man that has a double life, and I like that. And I think the main thing is when you go to each one, And I'm really obsessed by, people don't talk about this, but a huge job of an actor is to identify what he needs to do or adapt himself, herself to the situation. And listen, we all have our strengths, we all have our limitations, but one thing that I feel pretty comfortable about is finding out and submitting to the way things are. (laughs) So when I get someplace... I check it out and I want to adapt myself to what's around me because there's always a kind of learning process and it challenges the the kind of lockstep thinking you have. And I welcome that because I'm always happy when you have a breakthrough, when, when something is revealed that makes you question or gives you new insight into something that you took for granted. That's one of the pleasures of being an actor and that's one of the pleasures why you take on someone else's conditions or or impulses or thoughts in order, it's always a shakedown of your own, and I love that. So you have said that in 2004, when you and
0: Elizabeth ended your relationship, you were, quote-unquote, excommunicated from the Whistler group. (laughs) Pretty much. Was that a painful thing for you because you'd been a part of it for 27 years? And also, does it have anything to do with the fact, which I, I just kind of have noticed that it was around that same time that you started working with some very quirky, eccentric, you would could potentially even say experimental in a similar way, directors in film. Not that you hadn't done that before, but with some of these guys recurrently, like let's just give the examples with Wes Anderson. I think it started with, in 2004, with The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, yep. then 2009, Fantastic Mr. Fox, then 2014, The Grand Budapest Hotel, right. and then with Lars von Trier, it started with 2005's *Manderlay*, 2009's Antichrist, and then 2013's Nymphomaniac. Nobody would ever call either of those filmmakers or any of those films conventional in any sense of the you word. You can throw
2: Abel in there, too. And Abel it, yes, right, right. yes. I think what happened is, first of all, uh, the reason why I uh, went away from the Worcester Group it was more personal than anything and I thought we could continue to work together, but it was just too hard and it was too disruptive to the group because Liz and I were the old. I started out with the Woost Group being the youngest member. By the time I finished, with the exception of Elizabeth, I was the oldest member. There was a lot of casualties in that company. But the work continued strong. I didn't leave it because the work wasn't interesting. And it was painful because I was used to, I always had the fantasy that I'd be able to do shows with Kate when I was 80 years old after we had, you know, done the same shows 50 years before. Because it was a true company that we could put old work next to new work. We could switch roles. And that, that was beautiful. So I missed that narrative, that family thing. But then I saw it in other places with Richard Foreman, with Bob Wilson, but it's still not the same day to day. As far as these directors, these are people that I was always interested in. I think I was a little more relaxed because I didn't have the day to day. The irony is I didn't have the day to day of the theater. So I had more freedom to be reckless with my choices, not just economically, Mm -hmm. but time wise because I was always under pressure with the Wooster Group to not do too many movies. Mm-hmm. But I love working. So these people came to me, and I came towards them. I'm very happy with working with those, for example, those three that you yeah. mentioned in particular, Abel, Lars, and Wes. Yeah.
0: All right, so this leads us to what I have to say was absolutely By a mile, my favorite movie of 2017, Mm -hmm. which is The Florida Project. I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival because I did not cover Cannes this year, so I was Mm -hmm. a little late to the party. Mm -hmm. But I just loved it, and I understand that you came to this part of Bobby, the motel manager, because you had really been into Sean Baker's previous work, but I guess particularly Tangerine, is that right? Yes, that's correct. What is it about Sean? Because this is a guy who... You know, now he's getting a bit of a, a higher profile because right. of the Florida project, but he is the lowest key guy that I've come across in yes. this business, and he does everything. the the He's a part. Of, he's one of the writers on a, on everything he does. He, I think, even operates the camera often. He edits, in addition to obviously directing, and chooses most of the time prior to you, I think, to direct people who are not professional actors prior to working with him. So, what drew you to him, and what do you make of him?
2: As you're giving that description, I have a million answers yeah. for you. I love Sean. Yeah. I was attracted to him. It was intuitive. I couldn't say exactly why. I just thought, here's a guy working in the trenches and making interesting work, and he's making work that's appropriate. He's not settling for you know doing it a certain way because he can't get a bigger budget, which is a huge point that I like to make about Florida Project. Florida Project is a very small film. It's made in truly a neo-realist style. And that's important. That was a choice. And, and it was the only way to make this film because I think if you would have had more money or, or more well-known actors, you would not have been able to capture the truth and the, the integrity and the, and the reality of this marginalized community. It's, it would have become something else which is okay, but that's not where Sean lives, because he's really interested in the lives of these people, and we had to be loose and fly under the radar to be able to sit with these people and have them become us in a real way, because it's always tricky when you have a bunch of Hollywood people marching in there with careers and money and all that stuff and making stories about people very far from them. Not that we earn it by making it that way but they reveal themselves to you and you reveal yourselves to them because you're in a vulnerable position as well because it's hard to make movies at this level so Sean is just really tenacious but he's also very thoughtful and tender he's got he's got an incredible film culture he he knows how to shoot he's very flexible everybody makes a big deal out of the iPhone shooting that was a practical that was an expression of the best way to shoot that to make it uh, loose and fluid with tangerine. Yeah, with tangerine. Similarly, the reason why he used very the iPhone and 35, all kinds of things on Florida project is he had a very strong idea of, of the look of it. I just was attracted to him when he told me how we was gonna shoot, how we were gonna shoot in a real motel, with people that he found, some performers, some non performers, some new actors, children. This all sounded great because somewhere my ambition is always to not be an actor. (laughs) Be an actor who doesn't seem like an actor. Some of the performances that I love more than any are when I see a foreign film, for example, and I know nothing about these people. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether they're a highly trained actor or whether uh, they're from the street. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Sometimes I'm wrong. When I guess, sometimes (laughs) I'm wrong. So it shows it is possible. It's a little naive to think that someone might not have an association to me. You know, they see Bobby up on the screen in the Florida Project, and some people are going to say, whoa, it's the Green Goblin! <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, but I can't do anything about that. You understand my ambition. I'm very attracted to this idea that you don't see the technique. You see a person up there. You see a person that submits to the reality. And when I say submits to the reality, they're... Having stuff happen to them and they're doing things and you're watching it. They aren't telling you things. They aren't pointing to things. They aren't smarter than you telling you some little secret that you're too dumb to know. You're experiencing it with them. And, and that's really important to say because like in, in the Florida Project, people perceive Bobby as a very compassionate, sweet guy. I didn't know that when I was making the movie, and thank God, because I probably would have tipped my hand. Mm -hmm. I was too busy being a motel manager and dealing with these people and playing the scenes, which kind of confirmed my suspicion that you know, you got to take yourself out of it, you got to take your ego out of it, you got to find a new way of being, you got to find new impulses, and when you make yourself ready and make yourself able to be molded then that's when you become human. And that's when you can become that other person.
0: But not all, and I would maybe even go as far as as to say not many actors who have been at it for as long as you have at as high a level as you have, have the humility to approach it that way. Here you are asked to be in a movie surrounded by people who have not done this before. The family who is most prominently featured here opposite you. Features a young mother played by Bria Vanate. Eh, you know, she was found on Instagram having never acted and before, she's and she's fantastic. Then you've got Brooklyn Prince, who was six years old. She'd done a little acting, but basically, how much can you have done by? But a natural six? performer, natural performer, then, smart. Yeah, and and unbelievably good. And then you've got among the other people, including the kids who are around her, are some of these people who actually live in. The circumstances that you guys are portraying.
2: Right. But they're doing what they're doing. They're living their life, too. And and Sean is is framing them. And he's, for the kids, he's giving them opportunity to do what they love doing. He's tapping into a, a life force. He's not just spelling out a canned story. Mm-hmm. It's a living thing. Now,
0: Sean has said that he approached this as his version, he wanted to make a version of the Little Rascals. Was that something that
2: he even shared with you? It was that no. even on your radar? Because <laughs> no. I'm wondering what which
0: character does that make you? If this is no, little... that's, but... <laughs> that's
2: private. Yeah, <laughs> no, I never heard this until we started doing publicity. <laughs> it turns out
0: he's obsessed with what do they call the gang? Our gang. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Spanky, yes, the spanky is the main gang. Spanky and our gang. So a Brooklyn band. is now Spanky. Uh, yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think he believes that. He just didn't share it with me. Right. So when you decided to go
0: down to Florida a little before the production was going to get underway, what were the objectives there? I know you met with some people that did what Bobby did, but also, you know, got to work with these other actors a little bit,
2: right? Fit in, see what the lay of the land is, try to be them, try to hear people's stories, try to find details that, you know, play on your imagination, find some external things. You're going to be meeting with a costume person and... You're going to talk about what kind of clothes he has. You know, all these decisions, you have to, you know, do a certain kind of thing that makes you ready and makes you comfortable, makes you feel like I could be this guy and whatever that is. And it's hanging out. In this case, it's hanging out, learning how to do those manager things, getting a look that you can live with, that sort of thing. It's intuitive. You do what you need to take the fear. You know, you start to build a story. Yeah. You start to build a story, not necessarily a backstory, but you start inviting yourself to be another person.
0: Once you guys got rolling there, did the fact that many of your scene partners were
2: six and seven-year-olds, <laughs> did that
0: change the process at all? Was there more improv? Were there more takes? How did that impact the whole process?
2: Um, I think that we had a very strong script, and it wasn't that text-heavy and usually game structures were built into the scenes to help the kids. And the only thing that's tough with kids is it's a trade-off because you get this wonderful chaos and this wonderful energy and this wonderful imagination. But what you can't do is once you find something, particularly even in an improvisation, if you go another take, you can't build it or craft it. In this case, maybe that's good news because we probably don't want something so very crafted. You want something alive. And since you're really seeing it from the kid's point of view, you invite that chaos. So I suppose the biggest challenge, and I don't think I've admitted this, was you have to stay calm and be patient <laughs> and not try to drive. you got to let the kids drive, <laughs> if, if you can imagine that. That uh, is so, interesting. So, you know, I'm ready to grab the wheel if we're going to crash, <laughs> but you got to let the kids drive. And, and in the end, they were sweet kids, and the story protected us. Our roles in the story protected us. They were very clear, and they were very easy to apply because they were concrete. So I, I had a good time. I, I can never say I, I thought, oh, God, these kids, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you think, damn, that was so good if we could do it again and we just, you know, spin it this way or we take it in this direction. You had to let that go. Right.
0: The scene in which you deal with the guy who seems like he must probably be a, a guy with a history of mistreating children. Mm-hmm is so powerful and sort of confirms. I think when people, you say they describe Bobby as a good guy, I think it in a lot of ways stems from that and other interactions, obviously with the kids, but that he is as much as, you know, Lillian Gish in the night of the Hunter, one of these, the one of the great protectors of children in movies, people admire that these aren't his kids. These aren't his problem, but they're not anyone else's problem to a large extent. And so he steps up. Um, Was there anything about that scene, just in the making of it, that you can tell us about? Was it
2: a one-take thing and you just
0: got it or, you know?
2: They are his kids. You know, he lives there. This is his community. I mean, he's he's with them. He's slightly different than them because he's got more stability and he has a place of authority. But he doesn't have much of a life outside of that, as kind of exhibited by the scenes with his son. So this is his community. They are his kids. So he feels protective, and it's, it's his job. He's got to keep things secure. So he sees this guy. I suppose probably one of the most interesting things is that the basic shape of the scene is very clear, but the kid's playground, this is about dealing with what's there and not building a set, mm-hmm. is very far away from the Coke machine. <laughs> and in in the thing, the guy comes, and he says he wants a Coke, which is appears to be a cover for what he's really there for. So I say, oh, you want a Coke? Uh, Let's get a Coke. And we have to take quite a long walk Mm -hmm. to the Coke machine where we have the confrontation, and I really check, shake him down to see what he's really about. But that long walk couldn't be imagined. It was written before the scene was blocked out. So that gave us an opportunity for Bobby to kind of feel the guy out. I think that was an essential part of the scene and that was something that just it's not any great great genius improv but we had to vamp from one place to another place and that was an accident that kind of made the scene because it it, then it wasn't just a, a kind of melodramatic heart tugging scene it had another dimension and I think Sean's very good at that this is what I loved about him mixing the, the what's there with what we're inventing. Yes.
0: Well, the last question is just what have you made of the tremendous response to this little movie and to your performance, which has been at the very least nominated by about every group that does these kinds of <laughs> things. And, you know, there's just, it feels like there's a a level of affection for this, that for, for both the film and the performance that are very unusual for anyone in any film and just at this moment in your career how does it feel to you know it's not that you've not been appreciated before but right. I think it does make people stop and think about not just the performance in this film but the whole body of work that's for instance what we're doing today
2: yes I'm happy I mean I'm very happy the film has been received with a lot of love and it it has I mean when I walk around here right now I don't live in Los Angeles but I'm visiting now to do some press people are Really, uh, there's a strong emotional response. People run up to me and say, oh, Florida Project, and they go on and on. It resonates with people, and I think because it's a human story. And particularly the character of Bobby, he can't change things, but his his heart's in a good place, and he does the best he can. He recognizes his, it's not a romanticized version of what we can do to affect change. It's not a romanticized version about what we can do to help each other. It really, in a very practical, non-preaching, non-finger-pointing sense, lets us know our interdependence and the basic idea that your happiness is dependent on me and my happiness is dependent on you. And, you know, you you got choices. You want jails or do you want education? You, you know, yeah. it's like that's all in the mix. So I think people are responding that uh, that it sounds kind of soft, and kind of dreamy, but it's really what we need right now, these kind of human stories, because no matter what your political stripe is, right now there's a lot of aggression and greed is celebrated in our culture, not only our culture. We see it in Europe with their dealing with the immigrants that are coming into their countries. It has a finger on something, and it does speak about a very real problem, which is a problem of housing and breaking a cycle of poverty, where these people, you know, we can't just say these are bad people or these are failed people. They're our responsibility, too. And I think the movie, without being overtly political or preachy, somewhere on a human level, we want that. It taps into that basic human goodness to extend yourself to someone else because that helps give your life meaning and helps everyone have better lives it's beautiful
0: and i so appreciate you taking the time to do this thank you for all the hours of great entertainment <laughs> great. Yeah, thank, thank you, thank you. Thanks. thanks very much for tuning in to awards chatter we really appreciate you taking the time to do that